Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today we have an amazing episode for you featuring Mistress Velvet. Mistress Velvet is a communist social worker, a sex and pleasure educator, and Chicago's premier African dominatrix. She is best known for her BDSM practice where she teaches her clients about white supremacy, black liberation, and the importance of reparations. Velvet has been a sex worker and an organizer for 10 years. Her work has spanned reproductive justice, gender-based violence, and LGBTQ inclusive sexual health and relationship education for youth and adults. Learn more about her by going to www.miss-velvet.com. Let's clap it up for Mistress Velvet. Ever wish your period products were more eco-friendly? Tired of buying a $10 box of tampons every single month? Meet the OGs of sustainable menstruation, Isle. In business since 1993, their collection of smart reusables is easy on the planet and good for your body. Check out their amazing undies, reusable pads, and cups at www.periodisle.com and use promo code SEXEDDB to get 20% off your first purchase. Follow them on IG, at Periodisle. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Clona Willy. Clona Willy has been all about dick since 96, and all kits are hand-assembled in Portland, Oregon. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase of any Clona Willy or Clona Pussy kit at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on IG, at clonawillykit. FemFun is a family-owned and operated brand of adult pleasure products centered around the belief that all intimate curiosities and fantasies should be explored with full confidence. With that in mind, and a mission to break sex toy taboos, they launched a movement coined Fempowerment, committing to the human desire to explore new experiences. Embrace the vibrations. Use promo code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off your purchase at www.femfun.com. That's www.femmefunn.com. Follow them on IG at FemFun. Are you stuck with roommates during quarantine? Or maybe your walls are a bit too thin? Try the silent sex toy, Oh My G from Ioba Toys. The pearl at the top of the toy is designed to directly massage your G-spot that will rival even the greatest oral sex. Featuring a smooth exterior and a C-shaped design, the Oh My G offers a level of G-spot stimulation you just can't get with another toy. Go to www.iobatoys.com for your new Oh My G. Mistress Velvet, welcome to Sex Ed with DB. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. It is our pleasure. Um, let's go ahead and get started by you sharing your name, uh, your pronouns, and how you identify, however you want to answer that. 
Yeah, that's a great question. That's a hard question to answer. So Mistress Velvet uses she, her pronouns. Um, she's probably asexual and aromantic. Um, and she identifies as a strong black woman. And so she identifies differently than I do outside of Mistress Velvet. <laughs> Love it. Okay, great. Um, thanks for making that differentiation. That's great. Um, so what is Mistress, Be- Mistress Velvet's background? Um, and how did she become a dominatrix? Yeah, it's so interesting because she's gone through so much. Um, I started sex work a decade ago and was doing lots of different things. And then I had a friend, like this woman that I was crushing on for so long, um, back in like 2014 that talked to me about being a dominatrix. Um, and at that point it kind of coincided with other things that were going on in my life. I had gotten into the women's and gender studies graduate program that I wanted. I was leaving like healthcare behind, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of breaking the chain from like the kind of path occupational path my parents wanted me to take. I moved to Honduras to teach English for a while. And so I was just like needing a change and really wanting to tap into uh, my feminism more. I also tap into like my body and my sexuality or my, the fluidity of my sexuality. And so it just came at a really appropriate time. And I was like, I want to learn more about this. This seems to align with who I am and who I want to be. And then I really grew into Mistress Velvet but also had to like grow out of the stereotypes that I had kind of maybe internalized about what a dominatrix is. Um, because I think it's really hard, like we're inundated with certain images of BDSM and sex work and being a dominatrix. And so I had those thoughts when I was going into this and then shortly realized like, oh, this is not that. Um, this can be whatever I want it to be. Mm. And there's a lot of work that has to be put into doing this. Yes. Amazing. Um, and let's hear a little bit more about that women in gender studies program. That's awesome. Congrats for going to a program that you really wanted to go to. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, you, so you have a background in critical race and feminist theory. So how is that kind of uh, incorporated into your work? Yeah. So uh, my like academic research centers specifically, so I talk about sex work in a lot of different ways, but I think specifically I center uh, femdom, like black female domination over white cisgender straight male clients. Um, Actually, I'll put straight in quotations, um, (laughs) but definitely white (laughs) cis male clients um, as a source of like liberation or like as a spot of liberation. So it really comes out of readings I did of Jennifer Nash and um, Ariane Cruz. Um, Jennifer Nash wrote The Black Body in Ecstasy, and she talked a lot about pornography. And Ariane Cruz talked about sex work and different kinds of like images and spaces that Black women were in in sex work. And so I kind of used a lot of their theory together. Um, to be honest, it all, it all actually came out of a reading that I did of um, Bell Hooks talking about... <laughs> Love some dollars. <laughs> me too. Me too. She she really is great. But she talked about um, Beyonce uh, and the Lemonade uh, music video that she had. And, you know, she has a history. Bell Hooks has, like, talked about Beyonce being a, a – she called her a terrorist at some point, I oh. think, for her image on a Time magazine um, cover – and so I can't remember everything, but she really, Bell Hooks really just did not like um, Lemonade and like felt like, and I can understand this, um, 
you know, Beyonce's position as like a capitalist or like as a person, a member of the bourgeoisie, a person that's really rich. Mm -hmm. um, but that because of that, she is unable or unqualified to talk about like these kind of healing spaces and these moments of liberation that we can find. And I felt like without taking away the class analysis of Beyonce, um, I thought that like as an individual, we could still find moments of healing and resilience for us. And maybe, yes, that might not be contributing to the overarching, um, you know, our work to end capitalist imperialism and white supremacy and stuff. But we have to be able to find under these systems of oppression, we have to be able to find moments that feel good for us. And that mm -hmm. has there has to be some importance in that. And so I all of that is to say that I look at the work I do as a black femme dominatrix to say that I find those moments of resilience, those moments of liberation. I try to find those moments of um, reparations. And yes, they're not systemic change, but finding that individual changes is, is, is so key and crucial to our survival under capitalism. Oh my God, that was a fantastic that was a lot. mini lecture. <laughs> no, it was great. Um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. That's fantastic. And your master, masterdom. Um, <laughs> incredible. So, so can you walk us through kind of like, obviously your relationship with each client is really, really unique and really depends on kind of what the client wants and what you want and really is a, you know, a symbiotic probably relationship in a lot of ways. But if you could kind of walk us through like what a given session could look like or has looked like without obviously naming any names or any, um, you know, sure. details about people um, from beginning to end, like what could that look like? Sure. I will say there is some cohesion and dialogue between my um, clients now because the way I've marketed myself, people seek me out for very specific things, i.e. Um, wanting to do like have some intimacy with critical race theory. Um, so there's like three different kinds of sessions that I provide um, in the dungeon, um, which has its positives and negatives. The dungeon, I just want to plug, if I may, for a second, Please. Lady Sophia, Chicago Dungeon Rentals um, here in Chicago is really amazing. She runs a really beautiful space. And so a lot of times that's a good place for people to go, for me to go with people if they maybe don't have a lot of experience seeing a dominatrix uh, or a sex worker in general, as well as um, it helps kind of create this certain not commercial per se, but kind of standard feeling of BDSM. You got your red room, you got all of the toys. Um, and so sometimes I'll go in there with like maybe new, new clients or folks when we're looking to have a very specific kind of scene. Um, and so with every slave and client, they fill out my Google form. I use all of the screening to check that maybe if they have any like background of domestic battery, like my nonprofit work that I do is um, domestic violence advocacy. So that's really important to me mm -hmm. as a survivor to find, to make sure that people don't have like a history of violence. Absolutely. And I also have to do, you know, we'll talk on night flirt. And so I can kind of like see if we have an emotional connection. And then I really use that time to see like what it is that they're interested in. Why did they seek me out specifically? Because there's so many dominatrixes in Chicago that do wonderful work. So why are you looking for me? And a lot of times they, they come with a lot of white guilt um, saying like, uh, you know, I either don't know a lot of black women or the black women I see in my life are in uh, lower occupational positions. And my position as a white man has been feeling some type of way. I don't know what to do about all of this. And so 
as we build a relationship, um, I will try to like pair readings with um, kind of the play that we're doing in the dungeon and the relationship that we're building. So let's say, so if I'm thinking about a dungeon session, let's say there's a pattern I fall into where I'll assign them a reading. They'll probably write a couple paragraphs about it. We'll meet in the dungeon, um, dissect their, dissect what they wrote. Like, how are they understanding the theory? As well as like things like the language they use. Like I have a lot of people that end up using like, like words like colored and, and ebony and, and mm. I, I really dissect all of them. I, I personally don't like the word blacks. Um, I know that's subjective. So like that kind of language, as well as the theory, I dissect and then kind of like address them appropriately. Like if they did, if I thought they did well, uh, we'll incorporate some BDSM play and um, into that. And if I don't think they did well, that we will incorporate some punishment into that. Um, and so I think for folks that, type, that tend to stick to the, the dungeon, they there's kind of a you know, like a contrast, but relationship between the academic theoretical piece and the literal visceral BDSM touching aspect of it. Um, depending on the person, they might move into becoming a house slave, um, which really has a lot of, you know, um, harks to uh, slavery and like domestic servitude of white men in my home. Um, as a black woman. And that's very selective, you know, obviously because I um, want to practice safety and really treasure my home. Right. But for the folks that I, I have that do that, they, and honestly, I have to say I'm missing them right now as we are social distancing. They do everything. They clean my home and they really take care of it as if it's like this castle that they're worshiping. They like really um, <laughs> love my cats and I now have two rats and they clean their homes and their oh litter boxes. <laughs> it's really funny because I have a cat named Mistress Fluffy. Her name was Miss Fluffy when I got her, and she's really grown into being Mistress Fluffy. She's and my other title. cat, she has. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking about my cats, but oh, then my other cat is a beta. I love it so much. <laughs> and my other cat is a beta, so she really like doms him. And so when I like, I've had situations where my Slaves are in my living room on the floor massaging my feet while I'm like watching TV or whatever. And Mistress Fluffy comes in and demands their attention. And she and I are struggling to get my slaves' attention. I'm like, <laughs> they are mine. <laughs> oh but God. I love that. And so, yeah, they just come into my home and worship me and we'll continue doing our reading. And they feel this sense of like they're really giving their life to me, like really um, committing to this idea of black female supremacy. Um, so those are the two kinds of in-person relationships that I have. And then I see a lot of people long distance. And so that usually involves mostly reading. Um, I take it about one person who is a professor in Texas right now, and he's incorporating a lot of the stuff that we read into um, his scholarship as well as um, what he talks about with his students. Oh um, and God, so then the dream. That's so awesome. I know. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I feel very blessed or I need to find a different word for blessed like a secular word I guess honored <laughs> yeah privileged um yeah that, privileged oh my god this is oh. very very cool I'm so so glad to hear that you yeah no it's amazing and you've really like created your own kind of ecosystem of kind of like relationships with these people who you know are able to financially support you and emotionally support you and physically support you and your home 
um, and also uh, push them or rather require that they engage with these really important uh, intersections of race and class and uh, and gender, um, which is honestly the freaking dream. <laughs> um, very, very cool. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, and a follow-up question, I guess, is how many clients, I guess, would you say that you interact with on like a weekly basis or does it really vary? Like, what does it look like in terms of like number of people? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, and this varies based on um, in-person as well as long distance. Long distance, oh gosh, that might be like 10 or 12 people. I'm doing Skype, I'm doing Nightflirt, I'm taking requests for things over Twitter. Um, and so I have a lot of regular re uh, regular relationships over like the digital, digital world. And, is and Night then Flirt in person. An app? Oh, okay. At Nightflirt, it's a website. Okay. Um, they don't have an app. And it's like a phone sex website, is Got basically. It. I'm putting that in quotations, is what you would call it. Yeah. But I use it to chat. I use it for phone sex. I use it for a myriad of things. I use it to screen. You know, people might want to like hear my voice and talk to me before they meet me in person. So it's a really great um, website. And I think one of the few of its kind. Amazing. And then in terms of in person, I've now, um, um, I would say I limit myself to about three people maximum um, in person. Definitely see like one or two, like my house servants regularly. And then I'm quite selective about who I will see in the dungeon. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that's because I also work another full-time job that it means that like, and I have a very flexible job. So I work from home a lot. And if I do that, I can go to the dungeon during the day. Mm -hmm. um, but if I go into the office, sometimes I'm not motivated to go to the dungeon after 5 PM, but I will. And then sometimes I don't want to use my weekend time doing that. And so I'm kind of a bit bratty about that. And I try to make my schedule very flexible so that people are like scheduling with me like weeks in advance. But yeah, three, I, I might push that to five anywhere. Just depends on my mood. <laughs> of course. Yeah, really dependent. That makes sense. Um, and I'm sure that each of those clients, depending obviously, right, if it's like in person or uh, long distance, there's different kinds of attention and different kinds of um, you know, things that you need to emotionally spend, um, when you're thinking Absolutely. about what they need and, and who those people Absolutely. are. Yeah. If I'm doing the dungeon, like I really have to take a lot of time to plan and curate what the time is going to be like. If they are coming into my home, I sometimes don't, ha I can check out because they're washing the dishes while I, you know, send emails. If I'm doing a Skype or phone session, um, that, that requires a certain level of attention as well. So yeah, it just depends. Awesome. Um, and what are most people surprised to hear when they learn about what you do? Like what's something that maybe people are like, Oh shit, like I never even thought about that. Or I never even realized that could be a part of it. Or what's like kind of surprising, um, when you share with people. I think two different things. One, and if you're a person that's listened to my other interviews, I probably am a broken record with this, but people are surprised that it does not seem like Fifty Shades of Grey and that I just don't beat men. Like, that's the first thing everyone says. It's like, oh, you like beating men. And I'm like, I do. But that's not like the <laughs> but essence that's not of the this point. work. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that I had to grow out of as well, because I think 
when I was introduced to this, I, that's exactly what I thought. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be a feminist that beats men. And that was a very superficial way for me to understand this work. And so really, like, I think um, to the credit of being a dominatrix and I think sex work in general, people don't realize like how much care and love and relationship building and rapport there is in our relationships. Like I deeply care about my people. I have been in love with some of my slaves. I know that they love me or are and or are in love with me in some way. So it's it's not this like um, malicious, like singular malicious relationship. There is a lot of work that I put into to providing the kind of service and relationship that um, my slaves want. And then they also do that to me. They really deeply care about me. And, and they, you know, they push their own boundaries to make me proud. And it's not really different than other relationships I have outside of sex work, just the kind of work I'm doing with them. Right. Um, like it's a two-way street. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that's not to say that I, you know, don't get upset with them or don't punish them. But And I kind of play into that thing of like, I'm punishing you because I love you and so that you'll learn. But I think ultimately that is very true. Mm. And I think the other thing is just the idea of adding any sort of like theory to this. Um, I'm learning more and more that I am not the only one that does this kind of work. Um, I, I, I think I think it can be a very um, cerebral experience and I think that there is a lot of intellectualizing that slaves put into, like if I'm thinking about a white male slave that wants to submit to a black woman, that means they have to contextualize their identity and their place in the world. That means that they're looking at history. They're looking at like Afrofuturism. They may not use all this language, but I see a lot of them doing that. And so to be honest, I'm just, just supporting that or adding to the things mm. that they're thinking about. They're already kind of engaging in critical race theory and, as I said earlier, unpacking their identity um, and their existence. And I am just also offering language and theory and, and context to that as well. Yes. And I think I read in one of your in interviews, you kind of talked about, like, the breaking down of, like, black fetishiz fetishization. Um, yes. Could, could you, like, talk about that a little bit and how that maybe comes up and you kind of, like, exposing that to like white cis male clients and what that really looks like in conversation. Absolutely. I think it speaks to the point I made about they might not have the language to, um, to understand exactly what they're doing. And so they come, you know, we're all socialized in a certain way. And mm -hmm. especially with white men that are really not, don't have a really intimate um, relationship with black women. Like maybe they only see them in the work setting and as a the black women are in subordinate positions, they have never had to interrogate the language that they use um, and the and the social constructions and the controlling images that they see in our society. And so they come to me thinking that like the way that they think of me is um, is in a way that is like a compliment. And I have mm -hmm. to really be like, you know, calling me Ebony or Nubian is stupid and dumb and outdated. <laughs> and also like, the reason why that you're putting me in this like archetype or in this like role that role is because you haven't seen powerful black women before. So we actually like have to actually deconstruct that, which means that you personally deep down don't inherently believe that like black women can be strong and powerful and successful. And then also I have to like deconstruct what power and consent and success is because I don't want them to see me see my power as in a way that relates to capitalism. Like mm. my power does not mean 
having class success. It doesn't mean success in the way that we see it in capitalism. Um, and then I have to then figure out how to get them to build like a, a much more um, inherent value of uh, blackness and black femininity outside of the ways that we see it in our society. So this is a, it's even hard for me to kind of talk about this in the sense that like, it's, it's quite challenging. Mm -hmm. um, it's a challenging thing to think of. And it's also a challenging to try to practice with people who do not have practice. And as someone who is still kind of working on that in my own life. Right. Yeah. I mean, also, it's just kind of like an ever uh, occurring thing that like, we need to kind of fight against how how you explained of like, oh, we're all kind of brought up in this way. Um, you know, right. there's a lot of structural racism and sexism and classism that all of us are, uh, whether consciously or not, uh, like playing into with the way in which we live right. our lives. Um, and especially as folks who have been listening to this podcast for the past like three seasons know that like uh, we chat a lot about how cis white male folks are kind of um, the people who benefit most from these systems. Um, so that's yeah. why it's most important, I find, um, for those people to be the ones who are your clients who are engaging with these really necessary conversations um, under this. And it's so interesting, though, because they're, you know, paying you to teach them about this, which mm -hmm. is so incredible that you've been able to like build um you know this incredible uh like I said I I just think of it as an ecosystem <laughs> like you're kind of in you know in charge of all of these um you know different interactions and and different ways to kind of school people to teach people um while they are serving you as that's what they want to be doing yeah. And, you know, I'm really thankful. I think the way what helps me do this is history. Like we are always looking back at history. Like if, you know, the other day, well, not the other day, I'll say last month, um, a slave said to me something to the effect of like black women have the best butts. And he was trying to compliment black women. And I ended up having to talk to him about like Sarah Bartman, that um, black woman from South America, South Africa. Like I can't even remember what century this was, maybe 17 or 1800s that was brought to Europe and like put in a zoo and all of these white people are just like they've never seen a body anatomy like this before and it really like further othered blackness and black womanhood mm -hmm. and so when you know a lot of times going back to your earlier question of like the fetishization a lot of it comes you know they'll be like wow you're so smart for a black woman or you're mm. so eloquent for a black woman and i'll slap them immediately and also other things like your darkness is your, your skin's so beautiful africa's so beautiful and i'm like africa is so beautiful but we have very different reasons as to why that is and mm -hmm. and i think that like just again the context of a white man is saying these things about um africa or about black women it has very different historical and contemporary meaning mm -hmm. than if I'm saying that. And so I really try to get them to, to see that, you know, we're not trying to replicate the way that we think about Sarah Bartman. Right. Absolutely. And that, 
history is so, like you said, that's just so central to being able to contextualize these things for, for your clients, which is absolutely so cool. Oh, this is such a great interview. I'm so happy (laughs) you're here. Okay. Thank you. Um, Okay. So if someone is curious about doming and subbing, um, where should they start? What are some like books or TV shows or people um, or Instagrams that you kind of recommend that people um, really kind of delve into this world? Oh, that's a question I struggle with all the time. I, um, hmm. I will say what I did when I was first starting out is was watching a lot of porn, like mm-hmm. educationally. Um, <laughs> I mean, all porn viewing is educational in some mm-hmm. ways, but um, you know, I would just sit with a cup of tea and find BDSM videos and watch like how the mistresses were engaging with their slaves, and that. Um, and then I, I honestly did a lot of like just Googling and I was able to find stereotypes and, um, superficial, like understandings of BDSM and doming that I then was like, I want to build away from this. Mm. Um, to be honest, I think now I, I really just go to like the, there's so many genuine doms on social media. I, something that happens to me is a lot of people will just message me with this question. And I've over the years like made, I guess I'm going to plug this a little bit, but just like, please, I've had help making, um, like a resource manual. It's a bit more Chicago based, but it has a lot of national tools in it as well from all sex, all sex workers. Like I've gotten all of the, um, like the okay from sex workers to include this in this resource manual. And so it includes everything around screening It includes like for Chicago places that you can, um, have dungeon sessions. Um, it includes places where doms can, post, you know, submit, um, what's the word like advertising online. And I think that's a really good starting place for people. And then I think just like, if you feel inclined, um, asking, I really appreciate when people first ask me if I have the capacity to answer questions and I kind of take on a case by case basis. Um, mm-hmm. cause sometimes I really don't. And then I'll might be maybe, um, recommend someone else that I know who is willing to answer questions. I think mostly what I'm trying to say is that I have learned mostly from other sex workers and folks that are doing the work right now. Cause I think if you rely on like articles written by like voyeurs and, and journalists that aren't mm-hmm. sex workers that are interested in our work, it, it doesn't get to the nitty gritty of what we actually do right. at the same time, knowing that we have to respect sex workers times and that we get bombarded with so many things from clients, from people that hate our work. And then from people that, you know, maybe our labor costs, you know, to answer these questions costs la- time and labor. And so mm-hmm. I wouldn't say you shouldn't ask a sex worker, but I would also say if they say they don't have the capacity, understanding that and maybe finding someone else that has the capacity to talk to you about it. Absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. Um, so actually, I just looked up the date for this. And two years ago tomorrow was when SESTA-FOSTA was passed. Um, really crazy timing for this question. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts about um, how you or other sex workers you know have kind of been impacted maybe when it was passed um, and kind of maybe how it still impacts um, your work today. Um, and then I kind of want to go into the Corona crisis a little bit because um, as this episode will be coming out this summer, um, we probably all know that the coronavirus has long or will have long lasting impacts on uh, health, on the economy, on our ability to 
um, kind of interact with other people and for folks who have jobs that require interacting with other people. Um, so first, I would love to start with SESTA-FOSTA, if you have any kind of comments or, um, you know, things to say about that, and then kind of delving into corona. Yeah, and there's a lot of intersections between that and corona right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that I want to say about SESTA-FOSTA is um, it existed, you know, right before it, what Trump passed was just some additions to, um, some harsher additions to the laws. And I think things become mainstream when it starts to impact like civilians. So when it started to impact, like had the potential to impact dating websites that weren't necessarily like sex work specific or like Craigslist, then it got more people talking about it. But this kind of conflation of sex work and sex trafficking is a longstanding thing and and legislation being passed based on that is not new. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, of course, the stuff that Trump passed, like it came into effect way before the law was actually gone into it came, we started to see the repercussions of it long before, way before the law came into effect. Mm-hmm. And it really had some detrimental um, impact. You know, I think the biggest thing, at least for me, and I think a lot of people would say was the way that it impacted Backpage. And Backpage specifically, I knew a lot of black and brown workers, a lot of trans and gender nonconforming workers, and a lot of like working class sex workers used um, Backpage because it was much cheaper. Like right now I use Eros and it's like $100 sometimes to post versus I could oh, post wow. on Backpage for free. And so it like pushed a lot of people, you know, I think people, even though we conflate sex work and sex trafficking, the type of legislation, the way that we criminalize um, sex work pushes us closer into proximity of being exploited and, and being at risk of trafficking. And so um, when Backpage was shut down, I started to see like anecdotally, and I think evidence-based, um, sex workers being pushed into more clandestine working environments. Um, folks that maybe you could post an ad on Backpage for free, um, kind of rack up a, a day of clients or something and like book a motel and then see someone and have that kind of structure and safety. We're now being pushed back into the streets um, and where you're more at risk of violence from police and violence from just like being profiled by strangers. And so I mean, when it first happened here in Chicago, there was so much organizing going on. We were doing like GoFundMe's for like for caregivers that were sex workers that like now didn't have money to pay for diapers and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of organizing spirit has continued in Chicago. We have such a big community here. Um, and then it's interesting, there's like a cohesion, but also juxtaposition between pushing us offline um, for, with SESTA-FOSTA and then now we're kind of forced to work online in some ways because right. of, um, well, those of us that do in person, I should say, um, are kind of forced to work online because we can't be working in person, which is quite difficult for me. Um, I think something that I'm seeing that I do not appreciate is this narrative that like, I think civilians are just like, oh, I'm gonna like join, join OnlyFans or I'm gonna start making online porn. Um, as if it's like a really easy thing to do. Like mm-hmm. there's a reason why we find like sex workers find our niche. I am just not good with the digital world. Um, and so I'm struggling to be honest. Like I, and I'm lucky that I have a full-time job. I know that people that rely on sex work only um, and maybe are relying on specifically in-person sex work. It's, this is not the time to kind of now be figuring out how to use an entirely new platform. Right. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, like I, I want to name drop like um, 
hackling and hustling, or I might have it backwards. It might be hustling and hacking. Um, they're like a group of sex workers that do like a lot of like internet safety work and like talk about surveillance. We had a call just the other day around like um, stop LAPD surveillance and how they're how LAPD is using the internet to to kind of find mm. and track and incarcerate sex workers. And so this like push for us to be online while we're social distancing thing also increases risks in new ways that I that I think some folks may or may not have experienced and ways that other folks you know know quite intimately. So that's uh, a really good point. I didn't really think about that how like now that more people are being pushed to go online the surveillance has now increased for folks. Yes, and I think that like when we think about like the hierarchy we also make assumptions that safety looks one way or is granted to one kind of sex work versus the other. And right now I'm re- I've been really thinking about like, it's just different kinds of safety and different kinds of risk. I'm at risk for certain things when I see people in person, but there's also a lot of really real risks um, that you can experience while working online too. Mm-hmm. And there isn't, there isn't a need to kind of quantify it or, or make a hierarchy with it. Totally. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, oh my gosh, I can't believe we only have two more questions left. Very sad. <laughs> um, can you tell us your favorite part of being a Dom? My favorite part is the money because I need to survive <laughs> under capitalism. And then of after course. that, it would be, <laughs> I think it would be the kind of relation, like they're like reimagining the relationships I can have with men. Like I, I don't really try to engage a lot of men outside of work, but it's really nice to see them kind of grow and see their like the surprise and the intrigue they have with readings that I, you know, know so intimately. Like I love to have them read Audre Lorde, love to have them read Karl Marx and especially like, you know, they will, they are not resistant when I have them read black feminist theory, but if I have them read like Karl Marx or Lenin, um, they are a bit more resistant. And I think because it kind of starts to touch on, especially for those of my clients that are in like corporate positions, like executive positions, when they like have a sense of economics, you know, mm-hmm. and they think that they like, they, they can justify capitalism. And so right. if I'm having them read Karl Marx, they're like kind of iffy about it, but then they start to see like, okay, some of this shit makes sense. I'm like, of course it fucking makes sense. And then they'll be like, well, why do you read Karl Marx? He's a white man. And I'm like, this is, well, at the end of the day, it's not about identity politics, right? It's really about the theory mm-hmm. and how are we using the theory? And I have no shame in being like, I love Karl Marx. He's a, he's a German dude. Um, that wrote some really good stuff that we are implementing to this day. And so having them expand on like the critical race theory and, and, and I think really at the end of the day, even though I use a lot of critical race theory, I use a lot of gender theory at the end of the day, what I'm trying to talk to them about is anti-oppression and, and liberation. And so you draw those contexts from so many different places. Oh my God. My heart is so full. Um, (laughs) I am so happy to meet you and to have had you on. Um, will you maybe share, uh, where folks can find you, your social media, um, where people can get in touch if they're interested in a session, um, and all that jazz. Absolutely. Thank you for asking me that. Yes. Um, I use my Instagram most of all. So I'm at Miss V Chicago, M I S S V Chicago. Um, if you would like to like read a little bit more about me, um, 
you can visit my website, www.miss-velvet.com. And I have a page on there called Press with all of my interviews. So once this comes out, I'll add this to that web to that page, as well as like kind of about me and my theory and stuff. And then if you are interested in booking a session um, or honestly also like maybe booking a time to chat, you can fill out my Google form, um, which is also on my website. Oh, amazing. Thank you so, so much <laughs> for being on. Need a new vibrator? Meet FemFun. With an innovative approach to research and design, FemFun always strives to create products that truly fit all bodies and desires. Not all orgasms are created equally, but with over 20 unique items to choose from, the possibilities are endless. Use promo code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off your purchase at www.femfun.com. That's www.femmefunn.com. And don't forget to follow them on Instagram, at FemFun. Isle is a woman-owned, social mission-driven business based in Vancouver, Canada. Their goal is to help people have better periods through knowing their bodies and making positive choices. Each of their reusable pads replaces 150 disposables. Check out all of their amazing period products at www.periodisle.com and use promo code SEXEDDB to get 20% off your first purchase. Follow them on Instagram at periodisle. Ever look at your penis or vulva in the mirror and be like, damn, my part is art? Clona Willy definitely agrees. The original penis casting kit, Clona Willy and the classy counterpart, Clona Pussy, are easy to make, sex positive, and body safe. While Clona Willy makes for the most personalized sex toy on the planet, Clona Pussy makes for the most unique memento. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Check them out at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Katherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gamm. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.